Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Unfiltered, which features Armando Yanucci, a man I haven't met before today, but whose work has probably tickled me more than almost anyone else alive. Alan Partridge, the day-to-day, right through to the thick of it, Veep over in America, um, sundry other projects, and now The Death of Stalin, which is not only the first film to give the finest British actor of his generation, Simon Russell Beale, the film role he so desperately deserves, but also to, to bring another ensemble cast together in, in, um, in ways that are truly hilarious. I'm really, really looking forward to this. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered Armando Yanushi. Hi. Hello. We're, Hi. We're very glad to have you here. Um, not least because your CV reads like a pretty much a greatest hits of the funniest things on, on British screens over the course of the last two decades. It's been a long time. Yes, <laughs> it's uh, people know. Talk. I remember when I used to be a young Turk. Did you? Yeah, the, the future. You no, were the I'm future just, once. No, I'm just a Turk. Uh, 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 we are. We're going to get stuck right into yeah. the new film, Death of Stalin. But but before we do that, two things occurred to me just mm. on the way here. The first was we were Robert Webb was our guest last oh, week. Yeah. And he was very interesting on the period in his career in his late twenties when they'd cracked the writing side of it, but it was beginning to look like they were never going to be performers. And right. that there was a tension for him and, and David Mitchell. There was very much a, a kind of, well, we really, really want to perform. Yeah. You're fascinating in many ways because you've done both. You've cracked both and you appear to have satisfied most of your performing yeah, urges. I mean, t- when I started, I went through the same sort of angst. Didn't Did you? It, you know, <clears throat> I've always written and, and I used to, you know, always perform my own material. I, I've never thought of myself as an actor in terms of being able to do other characters and so on. Um, but actually, it started to dawn on me that I might not be as good a performer as other people. And then when you started, you know, and I started as a radio producer, really, in terms of comedy, working with the likes of Steve Coogan and Chris Morris. Chris, who had, you know, a kind of same kind of background as me as working up from local radio and rather than live kind of performing. And I suddenly realized, you know. He's heaps better than me, and Steve's far, far better than me. But you were, but you were comparing <laughs> yourself to two of the biggest talents ever. You could, you possibly, yeah. Could but at the time, they were just, you know, two right. of the people that I work with. Of course, you know, of course, they went on to become massive talents, and and because they were really good. But at the time, I could see they were really good, and and that's when I thought maybe I should just stick to the the behind the desk and the behind the kind of camera. So you didn't, you don't have an overdeveloped look at me gene then. Not anymore. I did go through a period. I think. When when we were doing the day to day, I went through a period of, of of just not angsting, not that I should be in it, but just angsting that I should be recognised as part of the creative team behind it, given that I wasn't in it. Yes. Do you know what I mean? That was yes. the concern for me. But actually, I shouldn't have been, I should have just enjoyed the ride, really, and Things not been so out. worried. <laughs> it's been fine. <laughs> it's turned out okay. <laughs> do you get, do you, do you get recognised much then? Because it, 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 occasionally, funny enough, we were just having lunch across the road mm. at a pret and somebody came up and said, can I just shake your hand, please, oh, nice. for just all the laughs? And I get about that once every couple of days. And again, that's fine. That's, that's all my ego needs. That's good to I know. don't need, uh, you know, people kind of pestering you and following you and being outside your door or anything like that. And of course, being know. a director feeds... For want of a better word, it feeds the ego in a very different way. You have all the power. You have film. complete. You can turn into a complete dictator. <laughs> I'm I mean, sure. Is, you can, and you're not, you not. I can see why you read these stories of Hollywood directors who have just gone crazy and do terrible things to their cast and push them to the limit. Because you're suddenly 
in charge of a massive machine that is costing someone a lot of money uh, and you're in charge of it no one wants to get it wrong so everyone will obey your every whim and and it's fine if you're doing a very short shoot for about six weeks even then you know yes. i come home and my wife says you're still acting like a director because i'm going right i want a cup of tea <laughs> should we go for a walk yes. yes let's go right where are the dogs bring the dogs okay right we're going out the door now you know you, and it takes me about two weeks to stop doing that because, um, because your word is law on a you, film set. and and i can see how if you're doing a production you know, you hear all the stories about the shooting of Apocalypse Now and all yes. that. You know, you're in another country. No one can get at you. You're in charge of now this tribe that you've kind of yes. created around you. Uh, you can go off your nut. I'm sure you can. Touch of the curtsies, actually. Yeah, um, well, exactly. Enough, yeah, 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 yeah. One for our um, Conrad readers. Well, uh, can we, let's just track back a bit, if we may, because people won't be aware that you started in local radio, or a lot of people won't be aware. And, and d ditto Chris Morris. It's an odd... Yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine that journey being able to happen today. I mean, you must have had quite a lot of freedom and... Yeah, I was really lucky, actually, because I started Radio Scotland. So it was both local and national yes. simultaneously. You know, it was part of the kind of the regions. Uh, but and, and, and you had the benefit in that environment, as, as you know, where you can do a bit of everything. Mm. You present, you, 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 I was allowed to write, produce, get the sound effects in, get in other actors. I was able to edit. I was able to work with the sports department, the news department, just to get their style if I was parodying any of their shows. So I was able to do a bit of everything, but because it was also a national station, it had all the best resources. So it wasn't like some, you know, sticky tape kind of tiny little booth come toilet sure. in radio kind of tiny, tiny place. Yes. It was, you know, it was a national station. So it was a fantastic training. And what, what were the first programmes that you made? What were well, I, I did this thing that we, we, we had a football commentator called Archie McPherson. Um, and this show was called Know the Archie McPherson Show. Don't know why. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. But there, it, was, it was Radio Scotland launching its new appeal for youth. You know the under sixties, you know the non Kaylee uh, audience. Got you. Um, and Crucial, so the, holy grail. Oh radio yeah, program. that's the sweet spot. Yes. And um, they were after some young presenters, so it was me and Eddie Mayer. And <laughs> I didn't know that. Yes. Was it really? And a few others, you know. Goodness and we were doing music, you know. Yes. And uh, but I was there to supply some comic content as well, and that's my training ground. I was just allowed to just get on with it. So you didn't you didn't want to be a journalist, or uh, I mean, no. you, you literally managed to get a gig at on a, a, a national radio station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you were given complete freedom to do whatever yeah, you wanted. But, yeah, but it was mostly to turn up every Wednesday night and present the show. Sure. Uh, and and also, the benefit of doing live radio was great as well. And then you start learning, you know, this is a little bit that then channels into Partridge. Yes. You learn the kind of what it is that a live yes. radio producer has to go through uh, it's like cadences, isn't um, it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the fact that dead air is a crime and yes. all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and, and no, I didn't. I And when I became, and then got applied for a job as a producer in, in uh, BBC Radio in London. Comedy. Uh, comedy, yes. yeah. But I was very soon put on a training course with other new producers uh, who were from magazine programmes and from news and current affairs and all that sort of thing, features. Uh, and uh, our project was at the end of the week to come up with a 10 minute, you know, magazine or news show. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that because, you know, I want to do comedy. But I've got these reporters and presenters and journalists here. So why don't we do a fake 
news program and and so that's what i did in that week and and that 10 minute tape became the the start of on the hour which then became the day-to-day -day, which you know spurred so everything. that i mean so it, it was, was a happy kind of yeah and a fairly seamless thing. progression yeah you know, from early days there i'm just reflecting on, on you describing fake news with an entirely different i know resonance to what I it know. has today there, doesn't there it? it was jolly <laughs> instead of this kind <laughs> I know. of well in nightmare that we're in now <laughs> so did oh, on which we, we will discuss further but yeah. did you there did you meet chris morris and, and alan partridge and david schneider and peter bainham and people at that stage you meet steve coogan i beg you Yes, of course yes. I mean Steve Coogan. I should have let you run with that, actually. <laughs> and, and then should have said things like, and have you interviewed but, but Alan later Partridge? on, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, no, what I did, yeah, so I was new, just down in London. I heard this guy on what was called GLR then, the yes. BBC London Radio, called Chris Morris doing a Saturday morning show in which he did parodies of news shows and DJs and so on. I got in touch with him and said, look, I want to do this fake news show. Uh, do, do, do you want to come along for the ride? Um, I had seen people like Patrick Marber perform, Rebecca Front, um, Steve Coogan, I had just seen on television as an impressionist. And right. I know he did Spitting Image and stuff like that. I just wanted a group of people who could be, who could do lots of voices and characters, but, but could hopefully um, be a little bit more spontaneous and um, improvisatory and so it would all sound very natural and very real but you, so you, I got that team together you you, you describe it very naturally yeah. when did you first get an inkling that something quite remarkable was happening or, or did you ever you uh, must have done well we thought something funny was happening yes. I mean Chris is just great his and his content you know he would go off break into GLR at night and record stuff through the night very and mercurial it, as well I interviewed yes, Charlie Brooker and they, they collaborated on Nathan Barley oh, Nathan Barley yeah, yeah, yeah years for the project sometimes he'd just sit there looking at Chris Morris for a couple of hours <laughs> and the meeting would be over that won't surprise you I don't imagine no I mean Chris, I, my first meeting with Chris was uh, at, at the BBC and he'd got his car outside but he couldn't park it so we got in the car and we literally drove round <laughs> Broadcasting House for two hours coming up with On The Hour and we shared the same kind of love of radio yes. and radio comedy uh we were both roughly the same age we were both went to jesuit catholic school it was at stonyhurst wasn't stonyhurst it? Yes. so we had shared some of the same teachers strangely oh really yeah. oh wow so there was this shared kind of experience um and you know and after the end of the two hours you know saving himself a parking fee we we'd come up with on the hour um so that and yes it happened very quickly and i think I remember when we did a little bit of the improvising and, you know, Steve started improvising stuff and it was hysterically funny. And then uh, I think episode two, when I I'd had asked him to come up with a sports presenter right. voice and this slightly higher pitched at the time kind of voice came out, but we fell about and must have done. somebody said, quick as a flash, he's called Alan. And someone else said, and he's a partridge. You know, it was instant. And I think when in the second episode we had this thing about Alan being obsessed with groin injury and improvising interviews with Linford Christie and, you know, a tennis star and a whatever, and him improvising about the groin. And just tell me a bit more about, I mean, the, the strain as the sinews in the upper groin area must, you know, the, the, the impact... We were on the floor, and I think at that point we thought there's something, something good here. I didn't think Alan would last for like 25 years. Yeah, still going. But also with Chris and his like bizarre, you know, that thing of 
taking a totally stupid, bonkers idea, but saying it with a straight face. Yeah. I think we felt we were doing something new. Yes, I get sent pictures of that every time I present Newsnight. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of weird, super stern yeah. demeanor. Um, yeah. Where did you see it then, in, in, in terms of comedy tradition? Where would you have thought then, I mean, if you allowed yourself such a sort of self-regarding contemplation, where would you have seen it as, as, as fitting into the... Because it I, I, seems a bit out of the blue to me. Well, yeah, that's... I mean, I just thought it's, it's, it's a sketch show masquerading as not a sketch show. Right. You know, yes. it's, it's, it's... And, and also, I felt... For me, the excitement was the comedy was sometimes about the techniques of the medium itself, rather than just it be um, very, very scripted dialogue. It was about, I mean, I did reports. We did these reports where I would interview each of the characters and they'd have a set number of funny things, funny bits of information to say, but I'd get them to say it in their own words. And then like a genuine news reporter, I would take away the tapes and cut it together like a three minute piece because then you'd get the rhythms of the, the jumps, but you'd get the condensed yes. highlights. Yes. Of the of the item, it was a lot of work, yeah, and then the jingle. You'd be doing razors as well, would you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was, it was white splicing tape, pa pencils, and, and and razors in the middle of the night. Again, just breaking into. We had the run of broadcasting house, so I could I could break into some of you know Radio One's kind just of amazing. desks at night and and muck about with that. And, and then TV, and it was fun. TV came knocking fairly swiftly, very very swiftly with with both their Noemino you and and uh, on the air going out, and then very quickly. And Alan Yentop was head of BBC Two at the time, and he said, Let, let's make both, you know, pilot both, but let's make both. So I knew that this year was looming where I was, I, I hadn't made any television, and no, Chris hadn't made it. So we were learning how to make television, well, at the same time, learning how to subvert television, and it was a, you know, it was a long process. But You'd have to be young fun. to have the balls to do that, wouldn't I, you? Well, to have the energy as yes, well. Yes, of course, that too. No, yes. I think you're right. I think, I think our... Uh, what helped us was we knew too little. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. We, there wasn't a kind of, well, this is how you normally do it, so why don't we do this instead? There was just a kind of, well, I don't know how you do it, so why don't we just do this, you know? Um, okay, we want it to look like something from the 1950s. Well, let's go. There's a museum in Bradford, a museum of television. Let's just borrow one of their cameras from the 1950s and just do that. Perfect. You know, <laughs> let's make this. I remember, you know, I wanted to make an American report look really sort of sashy and kind of degraded. And I remember the technicians were coming up with all sorts. So I think it never looked right. And in the end, we, we recorded it onto VHS. I pulled the VHS tape out, stamped on it, <laughs> scrunched it up, rolled it back in, and then we played it again. And, and it then did exactly the, you know, what you wanted. That kind of the Fantastic. basics, you know. And, and that, I mean, really, I didn't realise how quick that, that process had been from Scotland to, yeah, to television. Yeah. And after that, really, you, you've piled triumph upon triumph, haven't you? <laughs> has, there, has there ever been a period of professional insecurity in your oh, life? Oh, always. And, and you know, always, uh, I, I, I go into every project thinking, well, this is going to be an absolute disaster. We've got away with it so far. Do you even you know, now? Yeah. Even now there's a bit of you. Uh, there's less anxiety. I feel, a, you know, finally in my 50s, I feel a bit more confident. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So I now think, okay, right, what should we do? I there can't have been a fluke on 17 different occasions, <laughs> can it, that, we, that, that we've but, got you know, this right? I just, you know, I, but I did. And, um, um, and, and I, I don't know what it is, but I always feel that I've been lucky in that I think my skill is being able to spot talented people and to allow them the room in which to pl play to their strengths. 
I enjoy that. You know, yeah. I enjoy thinking, okay, what do I like about this actress that she's very good at, you know, looking puzzled and uh, and she's very good at, uh, you know, I remember talking to Sally Phillips when we were doing I'm Out of Partridge and she said her, her character, she was writing down thoughts and her character's absolute nightmare would be being stuck in a lift with Alan Partridge because she would want to burst out laughing and ha would have nowhere to hide. And instantly I just thought, but that's perfect. Because I haven't seen that in a comedy. Right. A character who actually laughs at the other character. In a co in sitcom, everyone is saying funny things, but no one's laughing because it's just meant to be the, yeah. how they talk. Yeah. How about if somebody actually... And we built that in so that Sophie, the character that she plays, just has to leave the room whenever Alan just says something. You know, it's things like that. So I feel that's what I'm good at. I'm good at bringing people together and finding the right means of getting their strengths, playing, getting them to play to their strengths. And that becomes self-fulfilling because so people see that. what you give to performers and therefore they become very keen to work and with then, you. And then, you know, and obviously as the years have gone on, I've been, you know, lucky enough to be able to... But I, I do feel genuinely lucky that, you know, the first people that I ended up working with were <laughs> Chris, Morris, Chris Morris and Steve Cook. <laughs> you know, they're, I mean, they're pretty lucky like, too to have, to have happened upon you at a, at a well, producer's no, meeting at yeah, the BBC. No, bless them. But, you know, I do feel... And a lot of these things are collaborative and a lot of these things are, you know, it's a pulling together of everyone. What I also like is actually the fact that we didn't all go to the same university. We yes. weren't a troupe, do you know what I mean? And of therefore we, didn't, we don't all speak with the same comedy voice. Um, that actually we came together from different backgrounds and like I say, Chris is radio comedy. Mm. Steve is a more kind of Manchester and then television impressions. Stand up. As well. Stand up. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Maher was a writer. You know, all that. These different, yes. so that we came together for the program and, and we've kind of then been together more or less ever since in various little combinations and ones and twos and threes you know do you do you look back on anything and 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 think does anything stand out as you don't think it did quite land uh well i've made a couple of pilots that have never seen the light of day because you know they didn't quite work or okay. there was an idea there that was interesting yeah. but you know or someone else came along and did it better and you know so so there's that i know and the second series of i'm alan partridge was a more I think we were hyper conscious of the success of the first series. Um, so there was almost like a kind of slightly frenetic, frantic kind yes. of um, atmosphere to them. Did it affect the personal right. relationships? Did you? But the well, it was intense. Yeah. It was intense. And I think we all needed just a bit of space. I mean, a bit of space. For me, it was a bit of space from Alan, actually, because what you do when you're writing them with Steve and with Peter Bainham is the three of you are in a room together, but there is a fourth person. That fourth person is Alan. <laughs> oh. Because the only way we can write is hearing Alan. So Steve will be Alan. And and as you know, Alan doesn't stop talking, you know, and that's part of the comedy of him, his his metaphors getting out of control and all that. <laughs> and you know, and and actually if it's been a very long day and it's eleven o'clock at night and Alan is still bleating on and still going and yeah it's kind of like uh, I see it as a kind of like brain him. planet <laughs> earth as a kind of uh, metaphor you know for shut up <laughs> shut up so yes okay get it and, and, and so you're going to need a bit of time away from uh, and, and, and if you probably, tried to squeeze another series or two out you probably wouldn't he wouldn't I have know, had a 25 I, year I, I think the reason he survived is that yes. we only redo really him every three or four years 
So we give him that space to grow privately away from us. Mm. You know, when I meet Steve outside of the, the project, and we, we do speculate what is Alan up to now. So he's a Fondly. Can- yeah, 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 yeah. That's the strange so thing, absolutely. isn't it? Because he's hateful yeah. and yet... No, but he's not, you know, he, no. he's well-meaning. Yes. Do you know what I mean? He, yes. doesn't, he doesn't harbour hate for other people. He's well-meaning. He's just a bit gauche, a bit kind of, uh, you know, he, he, his social skills are not, you know, particularly refined. Um, you know, his cultural hinterland is he's not everyone's um you know uh, and but he kind of there's elements of all of us in him and you know i've said to someone else the other day he kind of he re, he everyone says that they rem, alan reminds them of someone but mm. they can't quite remember who exactly and that's probably because it's them do you know what <laughs> yes, I mean yes, 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 <laughs> it's them that's who he reminds you of <laughs> those little echoes those little winces isn't it those, yeah it's it's, it's um when you when you sort of all get together, is it is it immediate? Is he back in the room immediately after yes, a two or three? Yes. It's, it's I was there a couple of weeks back because they're working on a new BBC show, and I mean it was one of the funniest afternoons I've had in a long while must be because must you know be just imagining Alan in that situation and then this situation and that's you know was just fun, um, yes. and, and 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 Rob and Neil Gibbons who know right with Steve have come in and they just get the Alan voice instantly and they they know. Uh, and actually, they're better than us. They don't make him silly. You know, they'll pull okay. back yes. and make him real, keep it real and keep it believable. And I had a bit of a tendency to want just the worst thing possible to happen to Alan all the time. Of course. And actually, yes. now it's kind of nicer, I think, that Alan, you know, he, he's kind of happy in his own skin now, Alan. Yes. I think when he was younger, he used to want to be middle-aged and he used to want to mix with business people. He didn't see himself yeah. as trendy yeah. and, do you know what I mean, and hip. Uh, now that he has got to that age, yeah, he, he's kind of comfortable now. There's a great exchange in the big issue that you guest edited as part yeah. of the um, campaign for the death of Stalin, where him and um, Malcolm Tucker debate Brexit. I don't think yes. there's any prizes for guessing <laughs> which side each e- yes. e- each one chose. But Malcolm Tucker then, sort of, is it a silly question to ask who your favourite creation is? Out of all of them, <laughs> it's not a silly question, but I, I honestly don't you can't know. Can't say because they're such I different. But, but like those saying, two seem to me see, to be the titans. It's as like it saying were. who's your favourite child. Of course it is. Know? Yes, <laughs> but those two are the that they would be the obvious choices for yeah. for that exercise. But yeah. also probably the obvious choices for the two characters you, you you you've created that have broken through on an unprecedented level. Yeah, when we did again with the thick of it was it was a very you know low budget. Where did that idea come from? Uh, How did that? Take? I'd been asked to do. Uh, uh, I think BBC Two was doing Britain's best sitcoms campaign, and and, and I was championing Yes Minister. Yes, a fantastic program, which still absolutely stands the test of time. The writing on it and the performing is amazing. You forget at the time that actually it was the first inkling the British public had of how Westminster worked because mm. there were no cameras or microphones in the House of Commons when it first It was Dick started. Crossman's diaries, wasn't it? Or, 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 or uh, there were one of the root, one of the sources. Uh, w- w- one of those. And then um, a couple of people who'd worked for James Callaghan, right. Bernard Donoghue, okay. and then, oh, yeah. then a couple of Thatcher people as well so proper insights driving yes. the comedy uh, and um and even though it's like a traditional sitcom with a audience there it's i mean the speeches are fantastic the writing's fantastic um and i did this and and it it 
researching it, I got to just watch every episode of Yes Minister again and, and realized how relevant it was. Yeah. But the setting was a bit outdated in terms of the, the you know, in, in Yes Minister, it's all about the, the chief civil servant trying to stop things from happening. And I thought, well, that under Blair's kind mm. of system, it's not about that. It, the civil servant's been shoved to one side. It's the special advisors. Yes trying to tell the minister what to do and then it's the pressure the centralizing control of number 10 via the prime minister's enforcer malcolm tucker pulling them back and saying you're going on news night and this is what you're going to say this is the line you know this grid system of thinking that you can manage politics on a day-by-day -day basis and it then unraveling because events always take over and, and, and it was i mean alistair campbell was in mind was he oh, or was absolutely. Alison, Peter Manson, but also there's a whole team of anonymous, they were called the enforcers, yes. the, the kind of the dementors at number 10 who visited the ministries. And, and I also uh, Malcolm as one of those, really, a sort of anonymous figure, really. Um, uh, so, so that was it. But it was a very... Uh, so I thought, well, let's update it. But, you know, BBC4 was just kicking off. Roller Keating was I never knew that, that it, I mean, it, it, it almost... I don't know, diminishes it slightly when you say you were just trying to update Yes Minister. I don't <laughs> never really never crossed my mind that no, that no, was no. the well, genesis. That, that was the genesis, yeah. And I actually met up with Anthony Jay and talked to him about it. And he said, you know, I said, maybe I shouldn't name the party. No, maybe I should name the parties. And he said, no, no, don't. Don't name the parties. Because you'll kick yourself. You'll kick yourself. I mean, it's very clear at the yes. time. It's but. interesting because the first series of Yes Minister went out when it was still Callahan, and actually Jim Hacker is a bit left wing. Yes, and it's the second series where he shifts a bit more to the right because it was under Thatcher then. Um, uh, so, uh, and and I and BBC Four didn't have very much money. I said, look, I've got this idea. I think if I get you know five people, find a disused set of offices and two cameras, not worry too much about the look of it. Just follow them. I make it gritty, real, improvised. This, this, this grows from your radio, from the fact yeah, that you yeah, made yeah. your you early programs without it. knowing what you were doing, but yeah. you got it made. So you thought, yeah. now you do know what you're doing. You've got you've got the best of both worlds, the confidence and the experience. And and, and just let me get on with it. Yes. And, and they and I remember Rolly saying, "Well, I haven't got very much money. What can you do with this amount?" And I, I thought I could probably make three half-hour shows with that in about eight days. And and that's what how we do did, you do you that know? calculation? How does that work? In I just head? thought. Um, so you think I need to pay him, 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 and him? <laughs> well, yeah, get people who are not going to pay, ask for an. Sure. Obviously, with the success of the thick of it, the production <laughs> the costs went, went up, up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> as everyone became very, <laughs> no, and quite rightly so. Uh, um, <clears throat> and I just thought it's an experiment, you know, an experiment, and um, and I got a couple of writers in that I had worked with briefly on a couple of other topical little shows that never quite came off, and. Um, who, who were Jesse Armstrong and Simon Blackwell and Tony Roach. Yeah. And we just mucked about. And there was that air of, you know, if you if I had known then what it was going to turn into, I would have been petrified. Right. But it was just this, well, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is the show goes out and it's fine and it goes away, you know. That's the worst. And it was a low... Um, it wasn't like a high-profile stage. Right. It was BBC Four, yes. and it was a you know a small viewing figure digital channel that had just started up and was slightly esoteric and had documentaries about artists on it as well as you know a, a, you know, a, a returning tape of the Isle of Wight festival from 1977 that they show every sure. Saturday night. Yes. You know, and all grey whistle tests and stuff like that. So you know, it's not you know, it's 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 fine, and therefore. 
it, it says it's a license to experiment, really. So rather than saying this is what it is and it mustn't change, it's like, okay, well, let's just give it a go. And I was encouraging the, the cast to improvise and we had these rehearsal periods in a church hall in advance where we just mucked about and, you know, developed. And we did, and, and this was utilizing what we'd learned on Alan Partridge, especially right. I'm Alan Partridge, where we do a lot of improvising in advance, not yes, actually on, not on set. Everything's locked down on set, but in advance we're, we're always improvising. Um, so this was utilizing that. Um, um, and we found this disused set of offices that were owned by Diageo. It was an old, next to an old Guinness kind of factory um, that were about to be knocked down, which is why in episode six of the episode six of the first series of the Thick of It, they're in an entirely new set of offices it's gone. It's because the old ones have gone, <laughs> have been destroyed. Um, um, and we got, uh, you know, a, a team in. Uh, I, I, I remember uh, when Peter Capaldi came in to audition for Malcolm. Malcolm wasn't Scottish in the script. He was just Malcolm. And Peter, I said to Peter, try and sack me. I'm a minister. Try and sack me. Be pleasant about it. I'll resist. Choose your moments, then just wow. completely turn. And uh, Peter tells me afterwards he was already in a foul mood because he'd been to another audition that morning that hadn't gone well. And he'd had enough. And yeah. He just hated directors. This kind of smart ass guy who did the day to day is asking him to come along. <laughs> That's going to be a load of nonsense. Do you know what I mean? And um, and when he turned and became tough, Malcolm uh, uh, and steely, Malcolm and stared at me, gave me the Malcolm stare. I thought, a, I want to leave, mm -hmm. and b, there's Malcolm Tucker you know? straight away, <laughs> straight away. Boom. Yeah. Who else auditioned? Is that is that an well? No, no, that, no. Because uh, what I like doing on auditions is if there are people I really like but not quite right for that part mm. or the part's already gone, I store them up and I think of something. So Alex McQueen also auditioned. He was the very first guy to audition for Malcolm. Okay, and he was more of a minister, civil yes. servant type. So we invented the character of Julius Nicholson for right. him, the blue skies thinker. Yes, yes. Um, so it's always nice to kind of, and sometimes it might be someone I saw four or five years ago. And I've always thought there must be a thing for that person. If we could just, ah, I know we should get hold of her. Yeah, I remember her from four years back. You know, that sort of thing. I kind of enjoy that. You love talent. I, I love I love finding the right thing for them. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I love seeing them. And then I love being surprised because if you found the right thing for them, then they feel confident about filling that space and trying out some stuff themselves. And if they're confident, then some really good stuff comes out and good stuff comes out that you hadn't expected. There's a moment in the first episode of uh, The Thick of It where Malcolm says to Hugh Abbott, the, the minister, yeah. something like, that thing that you announced earlier today, you didn't announce. And, and he says, well, Malcolm, I did. And there were people watching me doing it. And after several takes, I said, I'll just free it up. And Peter launched into this. He says, uh, you didn't do it. You did do it. They know you did it, but they also know you didn't do it when I tell them that you didn't do it. Because if they do say that you did it, when I tell them that they, you didn't do it, then they won't know what it is you do tomorrow or the next day when I tell them what it is that you're going to do tomorrow or the next day. And then, and it was just this, it was just this whole magnificent summation of the complete absurdity of the situation. And he got it. That just spilled out wow. of Peter. 
And as clever, soon as you he, need to clever people. As soon as he finished saying it, he burst out laughing because oh, he just wow. thought it was so absurd. But we managed to, you know, in the program, yeah, yeah. get the cuts just before he burst out laughing because he had no idea where this was coming from. You know, it Completely was just this, natural. And it's this immersion in the character, Gosh. you know. So what we do is we we give them the script, but we give them the research. We get some experts in to talk to the cast about what life is like working in a department. Uh, uh, and so they can feel part of that kind of world, you know. And it then means that, you know, the neurons start working in their brain along the lines of someone who does work in that world. You know? Which is rare for an actor, isn't it? I mean, actors must love, really, a certain type of actor must yeah. love the idea that they're part of the creative process Absolutely. in a way that they yeah. rarely get to be. But the best actors do that anyway. They, with any part they get given, they go off and they research it. Sure. They follow the, the, the real people. You know, if they're, being, if they're being a firefighter, they'll go and spend you know a week with a fire yes, team or something yes, you know yes. the best actors do that anyway so this is really an and they might change their lines slightly unless, Just, unless yeah, they're because sort of, they've picked something up saying actually the firefighters would say this rather than that you know oh yeah and, and yeah. again did you know pretty much immediately that something very very special was yeah happening? so it's when he did that and also when he did the malcolm stair to the the first minister cliff lawton in the opening scene the minister is sacked and then hugh abbott turns up and when he does the stare as in don't you fucking ever <laughs> shout at me again do you know who I am that look Surely. that's when I turned to someone by the monitor and said um, I think this is going to work yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah I bet but okay. again you don't think and it will you know it, you'll make a film about it and, no, of course. and you'll do an American version will there be any more I, I've ne you never say never but at the moment I just nobody feels inclined to do it I just feel you know politics has moved on into such an absurd land now that to do a kind of fictionalized version of it won't won't hold up it, you know politics is so stupid it kind of needs people to uh describe the seriousness of what's going on if they can describe that seriousness in a funny way great That's but the it's trick. do you know what i mean i do to, to turn it into a kind of sitcom yeah i think is is not the right thing to be doing at the moment because because things are so serious. Things, things are so serious and yet demented so at crazy. the same time. Yes, because of course with Veep you, you tackled the American political yeah. establishment as well. But again, it's a political establishment that bears as much resemblance to the one we've got now I as know, Malcolm uh, Tucker does to I, I Theresa know, May. And I'm glad I'm not doing Veep now because I, I don't think I could find a comedy in a kind of fictionized version of Washington. I mean, they're, they're lucky in that she's left Washington and she's no longer in office. So it, it looks at that kind of hinterland, that sure. kind of twilight, yes, <laughs> twilight yes. era of a politician. Yes. Um, the, um, uh, the, the, the other element... This was my clever question that I prepared in advance, <laughs> which was that in order to really satirise politics, you have to have a really deep understanding of politics. And a sort of love of it, actually. Of course. And, you know, and so this is it. where I ask you to explain what's happened with regard to Trump and Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, right. <clears throat> How much time have you got? Uh, as long as I mean, you want. I mean, so many things have happened. The, the thick of it was very much born out of well, specifically, it was the Iraq war. Mm. And I then made my, I asked myself, well, how can one person, i.e. Tony Blair, yes. get away with that? It tells you that there are no checks and balances, that the prime minister, if, if he or she has a majority, a healthy majority, can do anything. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely yeah, anything. Yeah. There is no... There's no, uh, there's no judiciary that can step in. There's no second chamber that yeah. can, you know, there are no checks and balances. Um, so there's that. Also, the tendency for politicians to to 
point themselves so forensically at the middle, the, the middle England, that, you know, the 100,000 in marginal constituencies who will swing it either mm. way, concentrate exclusively on them, taking for granted their left of centre or right yeah. of centre cool. core support. So not speaking to them. What you then get over the years are fewer and fewer people taking part in elections because they feel they're not being spoken to. Sure. So why why take, you know, uh, and, 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 and therefore you get governments in power on the back of fewer and fewer votes. You know, in the in 1950s, turnout used to be like 88%. And the two main parties together used to get about 90% mm. of the vote. I remember Blair's third government got something like 34% yeah, of the vote yeah, yeah. and yet still a working majority. Now, that's the system just fallen into disrepair, really. And there hasn't really been a party with any kind of decent majority since. Sure. You know, Gordon Brown, when he took over, had to deal with uh, losing his majority. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> get, well, it reducing as just wear and tear, yeah. <laughs> losing by-elections. Cameron came in on a coalition. Sure. Uh uh, he, he narrowly won his next election, which then Theresa May squandered. Mm. So again, we're now in a kind of bizarre coalition that isn't a coalition or with a party thinking it can run the entire Brexit strategy. The biggest thing to have happened to Britain since the Second World War as a minority government, mm. you know, without any kind of consensus. So that's why democracy has gone into despair. And, and, and you therefore uh, get two sections of the political spectrum getting bigger and bigger and bigger, feeling not listened to. Yes, you get people on the left and on the right feeling not listened to. So they gravitate towards people who are not like conventional politicians. Because because if the conventional politicians aren't listening to you, what do you do? We'll go for, you know, anyone who isn't a politician. So you've got your Nigel Farage's and your Jeremy Corbyn's in America. You've got your Donald Trump's and your Bernie Sanders, you know. And, and, and that's what's happening. It's this polarisation uh, and the collapse of the centrist approach to politics because it became so dementedly centrist that it was at the expense of, of everything course. else, yes. you know. So well, there you go. That's absolutely bang on. There you are. So that answers, and I don't know if it's an A-level question. <laughs> I know it's right. All six formers are allowed to the question out of the water. So you yeah. see, presumably have been less surprised than some of us by recent developments well, because was, they make sense This was you. why, with the death of Stalin, I was mm. looking at dictators as a topic. And I was, you know, the idea was to come up with a fictional dictator, say, say Britain turned into a dictatorship. You know, how would that work? It's because I kind of sense this this you know not just a fraying at the edges but a fraying at the center as well this coming apart of the political the democratic consensus i mean consensus is now seen as a dirty word yes, especially in america mm. you know whole uh, politicians um their entire career in america is is based on saying no mm. you know i stopped them doing this mm. i made sure they overturned that we will repeal this we're going to vote down any attempt. We to will do hurt that. them, yeah, yeah, rather than helping them. We're going no, to no, exactly. Hurt. A, you know, and yes. and and it's you know, and the American system was designed to be about consensus. It was it was designed to be um, absolutely inoperable unless the parties came together and That's compromised. Right. Yeah. And now at the moment, the parties don't want to come together and compromise, and therefore it's absolutely inoperable. Nothing happened, which is why you know Trump is so 
uh, angry that sure. he can't get anything done because the parties won't cooperate. And Obama was so frustrated that he and couldn't Obama get as much done that you he know, wanted he, to. The, the bulk of his stuff was done in these first two years yes. when he controlled both houses. Mm. Uh, and after that, very little done. It was Stimey. more a kind of tone he could set. As a president, he said you could at least establish a yes, tone, yes. a character to the country. Sure. Legislatively, you're you're much weaker, but you can at least, you know, and in terms of executive orders, you can, on a temporary basis, you can affect how the government is run. But but that's it, really. Yeah, you can't do structural change. So when, no. when you, cut, you, you were thinking of a dictator yeah was that as a warning were you sort of conceiving a little bit yes a little bit and i hadn't decided whether it was going to be funny or straight okay you know there's something about doing something like that great film the battle of algiers which is a fantastic uh, oh it's amazing uh it's a it's a fiction but it is about the french in algeria and the the war there but it's shot like a documentary it's ultra realistic yeah yeah um there's something of that or you know some of those Things the BBC used to do in the 70s, like threads and yes. uh, very, very realistic. And if I was thinking along those lines and then I thought, or oh, it could be funny. I don't know. But then the Stalin thing came along. Just by accident landed the, on your lap. Yeah. Because it's a graphic novel. It's a gra- French graphic novel. I was approached, asked I was interested and read it and thought, well, this is the story. This is it. I don't actually need to invent anything. Right. I've forgotten, of course, this all happened. Yes. Why don't we just do that? You know? And, and then, I, I, and also it, takes the pressure away from, the, you know, people maybe trying to, if it was set in modern day, people would go, so what is this? Is this about Trump or is this about, oh, yeah. oh, okay. what is it? Is this, yes. you know, what who's, who, who's, who's it an allegory be? for? What's you know, it? exactly. Yes. So, so that's what that, that and was And is the graphic yeah. novel laugh out loud funny? I mean, did it have you rolling It's absurd. On? I right. mean, a lot of our comedy dialogue has been written for the movie, but the situations in it are absurd and are funny, but but are also true, so can be frightening. So, and that's what appealed to me about it. So in the film, I've not tried to replicate the novel, but I've tried to hold on to what it was about the novel that attracted to me in the first place. And that's, this is the, the collaborative process is you, David Schneider and Ian Martin, Martin do, writers, in yeah. an office together, writing together. Yeah, or, do you bring or by via, via, you know, via email, you know, come together for a couple of days and just hammer out the beats of each scene and then just play about with it via email, writing and rewriting. When you were describing all your other um, uh, work and the collaborative nature of it, I, 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 I just found myself wondering whether or not you gave the actors in the death of Stalin these sort of freedoms. I, I suspect not, but... There isn't as much improvisation. No. But what we did was we gave them all their um, biographical research, um, you, okay. know, a whole, yes. you know, a whole like pack of information about their characters. They themselves also did a bit of stuff. And then we got them in early. Um, we, we rehearsed for two weeks in a, in a church hall, um, just just so they could learn not just about themselves but about each other's character uh, and and so that we could work out funny stuff sure ensemble stuff i mean you've got these and great chemistry as well the chemistry yes. you know when you've got the cast like, is incredible michael palin yeah. and paul whitehouse and simon russell beale and jeffrey tambor and steve buscemi you know and and paddy constein and jason yeah. in a room you know <laughs> you think okay well let's, let's <laughs> chuck in a few <laughs> new ideas here and see where it goes you know does yeah. anyone ever turn you down Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes, sometimes it's people who are used to seeing the whole script, right? And uh, but and this was close to a whole script, wasn't it? This was more it set was in stone version, than anything it else. It was you... a version of right. the script, yeah. Yes. But they still don't quite get the whole. So you want me to come in a couple of weeks early and 
Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure I can improvise. Got you. Okay. You know, and, and, and there's, there's that element. Or, or it might be people who say in an ideal world it'd be great to collaborate but I'm only free for these three days can you do all my scenes on those three days and I'd say well I I can't because the way I want to shoot it is different from that you know so it doesn't work out or it's just simply you know I don't get involved in any of the negotiations got you but you know maybe the money isn't quite yeah of course (laughs) there's prosaic considerations you know, or another office come in and actually I've got a bigger part in that. So I'm afraid I'm going to do that. Really sorry, but it'd be lovely and to work with you. the director's job you know, is to keep the plate spinning. You know, and it's, it's understandable and uh, and it happens all the time. And, you know, I felt lucky to have arrived at this cast. Um, but, you know, you, 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 with every project, you have an ideal in mind, but you never necessarily get there of course you know the one person you put it like that's ideal for this part might not be available for another year and a half it's odd that because it makes perfect sense what you say but i asked because so so many of your characters and very much in the death of stalin as well one can't quite imagine anybody else playing them but that's part of the process that's part of the process and also once they say yes we then think oh right we know that steve buscemi is crucial that's the voice in your head now let's rewrite some of these scenes now yes 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 because he does this he thinks like that exactly and and then I have conversations with them about the characters and we feed that into the script as well, their own take on what the characters should feel like and so on. Um, so they're starting to own the characters yes. so that by the time we get to the shoot, it should be that you can't imagine anyone else playing this part because we've written this part now specifically yes. for that actor. So it fits. Yeah. It fits. It's yeah. a perfect fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the premise, and correct me if I've got this wrong, Yes. is that his strang- Stalin's stranglehold upon Russia was so complete and upon everybody in his circle and, and the circles that go out from him in yeah. ripples that his death was o- almost impossible to contemplate, let alone prepare for. Absolutely. They hadn't prepared for it, yes. They hadn't. And inter- interestingly, America hadn't prepared for it is that, either. No. The Ein- Ein- uh, Einstein? The no. um, Eisenhower administration didn't have a plan for what would happen when Stalin wasn't around. Uh, and certainly Russia wasn't prepared for it. Everyone just thought he would live forever in a strange kind of way, you know. Um, so it's a shock. That's and, it, the and, thing. And, and one of the earliest challenges is to accept that he is dead for, for yes. all of the kind of main, yes. or for most of the and, main and characters. And Beria, Simon Russell Beale, who plays Levanti Beria, the chief torturer and head of the equivalent of the KGB, the NKVD, you know, uh, um, he actually, and, and in real life also, was relieved that Stalin was dead. He, he, even though he'd spent 20 years as Stalin's henchman, rounding people up and getting them shot, he actually thought um, Russia couldn't stand any more of that and it needed reforming. Um, so he wanted Stalin to die. And uh, Khrushchev's memoirs and Svetlana Stalin, Stalin's daughter's memoirs, talk about Beria just being obsessed with the body as, he was, as Stalin was like, poking it touching it just almost like wanting to make absolutely sure he was dead almost kind of reveling in it yeah he said his behavior was just absolutely macabre and bizarre because of what had preceded i mean you you can't apply normal modes of behavior to it and and this is absolutely true in the gulags people were crying when they heard that stalin had died you know the guy who put them there they were still because he also because he was cult leader and no one can imagine any flaw in the cult leader 
a lot of them had told themselves they were in the gulags because of someone else. Sure. Some law underling who had a grudge against and them. If, and and if, if he knew, if yeah, Uncle if he Joe knew, he'd knew. get me out of here. Yeah, yeah, How yeah. can I get this message to Stalin that there's been a mistake, you know? Uh, all those that did think that he put them there, but still also saw him as, as the, 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 the face of Russia, the Soviet Union. And that's now dead, you know. Yeah. What we, it's interesting, a lot of, um, under Khrushchev, well, first barrier, uh, freed a lot of prisoners from the gulags and Khrushchev uh, expanded that. A lot of the people who worked in the gulag, who, who were in the gulags, stayed in those areas because there was work there because these were prison camps, but they were production plants and they were used as slave labor. When they were freed, obviously they had to hire people. So there was jobs. So a lot of them stayed and worked in the gulags that they'd been imprisoned in. If if Trump hadn't happened, yeah, I would still subscribe to to a kind of sense that holocausts and gulags and that period of history was undertaken almost by a different species from the one I it's belong bizarre. to. And then you remember, you remember those scenes in Bosnia, yes, uh, of course, Srebrenica, and the the, the the very thin bodies yes, behind course. the wire in the in the kind of prison camp. And that was on our doorstep. Uh, and then, you know, in Cat uh, in in Spain and yes. Catalan, the the police going into schools to stop people voting, bringing back memories of Franco. And, yes, yes. You know, uh, and then we have um, the rise of the far right in Germany and Austria, and and Le Pen in France, and and then you know the authoritarianism of Trump in America. You know, and, and we shot the movie before Trump even looked like he was going to win the nomination of his party. And yet it is this strange kind of warning of, you know, this might happen again if you're not careful, that democracy is not a given. It's not a permanent state. Yes. I mean, that's a remarkable sort of circumstance coincidence for you in a way uh, yeah to, it's to, been great for us <laughs> <laughs> every cloud <laughs> yeah but i mean seriously because it does it focuses the mind on on um precisely what you describe as stalin somehow being still revered by the people he's abusing and lied to which is the yes, where trump and you is get the trump supporters saying yeah he hasn't done this and that but you know what we're still going to vote for him because he's sticking it to the the establishment you know yes it's even though he's of, got a golden lift and there's a kind of masochism going on, a strange uh, kind of group masochism. And you get it in Brexit. You know, the 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 parts of the UK that will be most badly yeah, affected absolutely. by the exit are the ones that voted most heavily to exit. It's a kind of, yeah, bring it on. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, when World War One was declared and people were going, I'm going off to fight. Yes. And people saying, no, but you will get killed. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Come on, alternative facts. Alternative yeah, facts. Ah, we'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fake news. And then it's just coming back with, you know, one ear and and no arms. If you you're know? lucky. And it's uh, it's bizarre. It, well, it's bizarre. yes, and then it's ongoing. Um, yeah. we probably haven't really communicated how funny the film is. It's, 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 <laughs> it's and, and I mean the the, the the slapstick in it. It's not just yes, it's not just yeah. satire and political yeah. comedy. It's, yeah. It, 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 Covers an went, awful lot of ground. I went back and looked at The Great Dictator, the Charlie Chaplin mm. film, which has got a lot of fantastic, funny set pieces, as well as scenes set in the Jewish ghetto. Yes. And and, and references to prison camps. And, and one reference to gas, actually. I can't, yeah. yeah. It's years since I've watched it. But that, that, that light know. and shade, the nuance, yeah. the, the motion. So where does the comedy come from in The Death of Stalin? It comes from 
people being too scared, you know, scared about what to do and looking at each other to see, you know, nobody wanting to be the first person to speak. And if you are the first person to speak, looking at everyone else to try and work out what it is you should be saying. Uh, I, I think it's that really. Which everybody recognizes. Which everybody, you know, everyone's been in a meeting where, you know, it's the, the boss, the boss has said, uh, you know, Sam, what do you think? Um, and then you look to the boss <laughs> and to you, the, you know, and just, I think, you know, there's and then a everyone, oh, yes, great. Oh, yeah, very good idea. Yeah, very yeah, good. Yeah. It's like bystander syndrome as well. When someone's yes. getting shouted at on the tube and everybody wants to intervene, but until one, and then when one person does, yes, and 10 other people discover their, you, you wait for somebody to, yeah. to lead the line. Yeah. So, I mean, was it a period of history that you, you'd studied? Were you, were you... A little bit. I'd studied more. Uh, I mean, I, I love classical music, especially 20th century classical music and Shostakovich in particular, who was a Soviet, you know, grew up, all his music was under, it was in the Soviet, during the Soviet regime. And there was someone who Stalin criticized one of his operas yes. and he just thought, that's it, I'm done for. And he packed a suitcase and he just waited by the door every night for about a year and a half and then realized, oh, they're not coming for me. But the work dried up for a bit and he ended up having to just write film scores just to make ends meet. Um, so that that period I kind of was familiar with and that kind of how something uh, political can affect what you think of as non-political, like symphony music, orchestral yes. music. Yes. You know, it had to be written in a certain way and not in another way. Um, That's that what totalitarian means almost, isn't it? it yes, or, yes, it is, isn't it? It's like telling you how to think and what culture you should have and... And that's the only yeah. way you can sustain the cult is by not letting people question it. And that is exactly. that why they hate artists, fascists, because well, art is imagination and yeah. imagination leads to empathy. They, they, they feel threatened by them, you know, because they don't quite understand it. They don't get it. No. They don't get the fact that art is not literal. No. You know, and that's why comedy is interesting under totalitarian. I mean, they circulated joke books about Stalin. Right. Which you could be shot if you had one in your possession. But and still... Yet, and yet the joke, you know, being able to laugh at them is such a weapon within your own sense and of... And they hate it. I'm still human because yes. I can make a joke about it. You do yeah. wonder whether Barack Obama directing all those jokes at Trump during the correspondence That's dinner explains a lot of what's yeah, happened absolutely. subsequently. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because the psychodrama, the personal psychodrama is immense. Yeah, You've yeah. got a massive hit on your hands again, haven't you? I mean, the the, the early notices have been incredible. The, yeah, but it's, you know, I mean, in the end, the proof will be in how many people want to come out and see it in the cinema, you know? Sure. Uh, how many people will go, yeah, I've heard about this. Sounds funny. It's about Stalin, though. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is it that? Should we do that or should we do Blade Runner? You how, know, how much of a pull do you think your name is? Because I was looking at the poster on the tube on the way here. It's an Armando Yanucci film and it mentions a couple of... Um, I suppose more so than used to be. I think people yeah. now, because of vape and thick of it and yes. partridge, I think there's a kind of cumulative kind of back catalogue now that I can, uh, can rely on. But... Um, I still, you know, and I will be, it's amazing, film all comes down to like the weekend, the opening weekend, in a way that television doesn't. No. You know, you start worrying about the weather. Uh, right, you really, know? so it's like an election <laughs> it's almost. It's raining, God, it's, do you think people, would you go and see a film in the rain, or is that good? I don't know. And it's slow not, burners are of no interest to studio bosses. Exactly, it's a kind of strange thing, whereas television, you know how much it's gonna cost, you know how many you have to make, how long course, it's to be, yes, when yeah. it'll go out, and yeah. who watched it? And if it does brilliantly, you can up your prices for the next, next series, one. but you, you're you know, not going to so be. It's all done. Reflecting Whereas on the work film that's been done. is, I don't know if it's going to get made. 
uh, oh yeah, we've got some money to make it. I don't know if anyone's going to show it. Oh, we've got some money to show it. That's good. I don't know if people are going to come and watch it. Do you lie awake at night at all still at this point? Worried? No, Something as no, big as I this? Don't, actually, no, I don't. I don't. Okay. I, I don't take my work home with me at all, really. That's nice. Uh, no, I, and it's taken me, took me a little while to do that, but sure. I think once you start having kids, actually, that's yeah, when it takes you know, there's no, there's no option. There's no option. No. So um, I, I'm very good at switching off in the evenings and at weekends, really. Okay. Obviously, when you get in the middle of a production, it's full on. It's, it's all hours, but it's for a kind of limited amount of time. And do you have, for the death of Stalin, a, a, a threshold? Do you have a point? Have you got something in mind that will, in your mind constitute success with uh, a, a, in terms of say, no I mean I don't know what like the box office should be or uh, I, I think you know if we get through this weekend with you know reasonably good reviews and it, you know the distributor is happy with the yeah. people the amount of people that have come I think that's fine you know that is, that's I'm not interested it's lovely if it goes on and Sure, and there's you know the the whole awards. But you move on. You you move. You yeah, can't. You I'm don't spend do your life thing. looking in the no, rearview no, no. mirror. Which leads me to my final question, yes. Amanda Yanucci. What's next? What's next is a movie of uh, David Copperfield. I'm a big Dickens fan, and I want to do David Copperfield. <laughs> One awful minute, I thought you meant the magician. No, of course not. <laughs> so that would be great, and well, that's another you, opportunity no, to have an amazing cast. If you'd it? said for one awful moment, I, I I thought you'd meant the magician, what would you have done if I said yes, I do mean the magician? Well, I'd have styled it out somehow. <laughs> I'd have styled it out. I'd have my training in local radio like Alan yeah, yeah, Partridge yeah. did. I'd have been all right. Thank you ever so much. Oh, that pleasure. Was a real pleasure. That's been great. Thank you. Thank you. And there we are, four in the bag, Armando Iannucci, who in some ways, I'm joined as ever for, for this post-match analysis by my producer Richard, in some ways he pulls together a lot of what we've done on previous episodes because Alistair Campbell, of course, is the basis of Malcolm Tucker. And then when Russell Brand and, and, and Robert Webb have been here, we've sort of discussed comedy and politics and the interplay. And Armando Iannucci really is, is the godfather of all of it. He lived up to expectations. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> what a fascinating yeah. man. He's really sort of like followed a through line all the way through so far up to episode four. It, it, yeah, it's almost like we planned it, which yeah. of course we didn't. It'd, it'd all go off the rails. <laughs> don't let on. But the question I asked him, and I, and I had, I don't prepare many questions in advance because it, 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 it sort of robs you of the will to listen to the answer to the last question you asked if you've got the next one in the barrel already. Mm -hmm. But when I asked him to explain what had gone on in politics, that that was just. That was straight out of a, of a sort of PhD thesis. It really it? was, wasn't it? And I think that kind of shows the kind of level of brain that we just had sitting on this seat you know, 10 minutes ago when we were recording this. Um, yeah, there's no one else like him working in British politics. Uh, sorry, well, yeah, there politics you go. and comedy <laughs> and the crossover, you're right. Yeah, That's... there's no one else like him. And uh, I mean, sort of the highlight for me was that listening to their talking about the creation of Malcolm Tucker and... Alan Partridge and all these kind of iconic characters but then yeah you asked him that question and whew, off Boom, he went straight off so jealous could you imagine of being in on the ground floor of any of those <laughs> any of those projects and creations no I, but then I suppose when you're in those moments you don't really think this is going to become an iconic piece of television you just think this is a laugh I bet they did with Malcolm <laughs> I bet they knew because they've got so much in the in the locker by then they must have known that it looks like the stars have aligned once yeah. more it was interesting when he was saying that uh, initially he didn't have a Scottish accent yeah. and then I mean, that just completely brought the characters together. It was perfect. Yeah, well, I enjoyed that a lot, and I, th I hope he did as well. I'm sure he did.